If you have a copy of God's Word, digital or analog, and would like to open it to follow along with us, we're going to be studying today in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read from verses 1 through 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, as we continue our series entitled, Being God's People, taking a look at what it means to be the people of God in a post-Christian society, in our contemporary community and where God's called us to live and minister and have our families. So, would you read with me from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is God's holy, inerrant, and eternal Word. May He add His blessing to its reading and its proclamation. When you think about what is necessary for the Christian life, many of us tend to think of many good things that can help us live a good Christian life. We can think of the fact that we might say, well, we need a a gospel community, and you would be correct. Scripture says that we need to be a part of a gospel community. It is helpful in a Christian life, if you want to live a healthy Christian life, for someone to come along and and teach you God's Word or to disciple you. And so maybe you think, well, if I want to be a healthy Christian, I need to have been discipled. And you would be correct. We believe that God has called the church to be full of disciple-making disciples. You may say, well, what I need to be a healthy Christian is I need really good worship. And don't we praise God for wonderfully gifted musicians and artists and creative people who take lyrics and set them to wonderful music. We're so thankful for Candace leading us in worship today. It's a great example of that. We're wonderfully gifted when God's people steward the gifts that God has given them in ways that bear fruit in the life of the church. And again, we would say that is absolutely a necessity as well. But what if all of those things were taken away from you? You have brothers and sisters around the world who don't have worship bands. They don't have song lyrics on screens. They may not even have a single song written in their heart language by which to proclaim the good news of Jesus. What if you hear the gospel, come to believe in it, but no one ever disciples you? 
What if your church is taken away because in places like Somalia or Qatar or Dubai or Saudi Arabia, you can't go to church? What happens to our faith when we are people in exile? Now, again, hear me clearly. Everything that I just shared is good and needful, and we should take advantage of it whenever God gifts it to us. But I want us to understand this. That to be the people of God, we must be radically dependent on a God whose greatest gift to His church is Himself. And we are called to depend on Him who alone is all that is necessary, all that is truly needful. And that's exactly what Peter talks about in verses 3 and 4. God's gifts, God's geyser, and we'll talk about why I picked that word here, and God's grace, all right? Let's take a look at what that looks like. God's gifts, God's geyser, God's grace, and why we're called to depend on that even when we have none of the other things that we may think and, and which are truly gifts from the Lord. Let's talk about God's gifts. Do you believe this statement? Do you believe that God has given you all that you need to truly live? Or is there something else you need for you to be really alive? Uh, if I had a better job, I would really be alive. If I had a relationship, I would really be alive. If I had a, a spouse or if my health was really good, I would be genuinely alive. If I had some possession, a better house, a better lifestyle of some way, I would genuinely be alive. Peter's argument in verses 3 and 4 is this, that God's divine power has granted or gifted to us all things that pertain to life. Okay, don't miss this point. He's like, God's gifted you already everything that you need to truly live. Part of our problem and the reason we reflex into so many of those other things, we think that those things are necessary for our lives, is because we have actually made a set of choices that is to step away from the source of real life, the fountain of real life, when we were created to be truly alive in God and in God alone. We, as the human race, chose death. Understand that. The reason there is death in the world is because we have chosen it. You say, well, I, I didn't choose death. Well, in one sense, that would be true, but your spiritual forebearers did. They chose for you. Uh, Adam and Eve chose for you. God made it abundantly clear. He commanded Adam in the garden, saying to him, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why? Because in the day that you eat of it, you will die. 
Over and over and over again, the human race makes a choice that says, I will choose something else to be the source of life besides God Himself. And in so doing, we always choose death. We choose that which cannot possibly actually bring us life. And judicially or legally, we earn the death penalty. We choose to substitute God the life giver, and then resultingly, because God is infinitely holy, we earn the penalty of death. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. We earn that reality. The reason we live in a world that is so broken and that we experience death relationally and we experience death economically and we experience death societally or nationally is because we are perpetually looking for other sources of life and thereby earn the death penalty. We live, in fact, in death. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, And he says this, you were, before you came to Jesus, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You walked in death. You know what we call people that are walking around that are dead? Zombies, right? It's it's Halloween weekend, right? Zombies. Zombies. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked because we were following what everybody else values, what everybody else cares about in this world. I was listening to a really great pastor, uh, Pastor Mark Sayers, um, on a great podcast that we're going to be sharing out to the whole congregation in the weeks ahead as we invite you to think about the society in which God has called us to live. And he talks about the fact that it doesn't matter whether you are a right-wing millennial or a left-wing millennial, that in reality, that although you may consider yourself very progressive politically and liberal socially or very conservative politically or conservative socially, he's like the studies show that, guess what? You spend your money in all the same places. You have, in fact, the exact same sexual ethics. And in fact, there's very little differences in you at all when it comes to how you actually live your life, because we're really worshiping the same gods of individualism and self-determination. And that leads us to the same locations, because we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We're not just following the course of the world, though. Scripture says we're dead because we follow the prince of the power of the air. He's talking about Satan, right? And he goes on to say, that spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So we follow the world, we follow Satan, and we follow our own wicked little hearts. And the result of carrying out the desires of the body and the mind is that we become children of wrath. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus came to upend all of that. He came to defeat death and its author. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, 
That is the devil. In other words, Jesus came to die on a cross as our substitute, defeating Satan's power, enacting a new kingdom, and bringing us into a kingdom of life instead of a kingdom of death where we had been living. He came to give us real, overflowing life. Now, just you've got to hear what I'm saying. I am not saying that Jesus came to give you some life someday, somewhere in the sweet by and by. That is not what I am saying. I am saying Jesus came to give you life now. Real life, overflowing life now. Jesus said, I came that they may have life, it's a present tense, and have it abundantly or overflowingly. Christians have been gifted life when we deserved and chose death. Now, it is also true that Jesus came to give us a life that never ends. So, He came to give us eternal life, and Scripture reminds us of that, that if we will but believe in God's gift, the gift of His Son, that we can have life eternal or everlasting. But that life begins Now, so Peter says that God's divine power has come to give you and me all that we need to live today. Have you ever felt like, if I don't have this thing, I'll just die? Whatever that thing is, that's what you're looking for to give you life. Jesus came to give you, through His divine power, real life, right now, in whatever situations He puts you in. That's true in a concentration camp in North Korea. It's true on a garbage heap in Lagos, Nigeria. And it is true in Passerables, California, right now. You can be in all those places and be alive because Jesus came to give you that life that's unending. So Peter says God came to gift you life and also all that you need to authentically live in relationship with God. With God. So go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and look what it says. His divine power has granted or gifted to us all things that pertain to life and what? Godliness. Now, Too many of us confuse godliness and goodness, or godliness and ethical morality, okay? If you are godly, you will overflow with goodness to give to other people. If you are godly, you will overflow with ethical morality, but that is not what godliness is. Godliness is God-likeness. It is God-centeredness. And that word has a peculiar meaning. That's why we don't have another word for it. It means to, to become like God because you are filled with God and you are in relationship with that God. So Peter says, if you want to know what Jesus came to do through His divine power, He came to give you all that you need to truly live and live in relationship with God, becoming like Him, and and 
living with Him in you, indwelling you. All that we actually need to become godly and God-centered. That means that all that we need to become genuinely godlike is not found in the latest training course or in the latest YouVersion Bible reading plan or in any new article that you're going to read online at TGC or in any sermon that you are going to hear. Now, I would encourage you to do all of those things because we all need to be reminded of what godliness looks like. (laughs) But I want you to understand that the power of God that you need to become God-like not become God, we're not Mormons, okay? God-like is found in the gift of God to you. So, Peter says in verse 4, he says that he, God, has granted to us or gifted to us again his precious and very great promises so that through them, through the promises of God, you can do what? You can be partakers of of the divine nature. Just slow those words down. Think about what they mean. If I said to you in a few weeks when Thanksgiving shows up and I brought a big pie to you of your favorite kind of pie and I said, partake, what would that mean? It means dig in, enjoy, ingest, taste it, right? And Peter says, through God's promises, you get to partake of God. You get to partake of God. You get to do what the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. So all that we need to become genuinely godlike physically has been gifted to you. And, and that's why I went here first because I don't want you to think of this talking about in some spiritual abstract reality. Understand that the Christian hope is this, that the Jesus who died for us on the cross as our substitute, as the only way to be brought back in right relationship with God, did not stay dead. You know, I get asked when I'm talking to churches or when I'm doing presentations to churches about church renewal and church uh, revitalization, and, and why do I believe this? And I said, because I believe in the resurrection. Jesus walks out of the grave. He takes dead things and He makes them come to life. And that includes you and me. God's given you the ability to have a body that will actually become like the body of Jesus Christ. That is mind-blowing, right? Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will transform... Our lowly body, no matter how broken your body is right now, He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. C.S. Lewis said that if we see each other in some small glimpse now, if if we were to somehow see into heaven and see what we will look like in our glorified bodies, we would be tempted to fall down and worship one another. The reason why is because we will look like Jesus. And the divine will strip off all of the fallenness of this world. And 
that's going to happen to you and me. And, and folks, that matters. It matters when our friends lose their parents or we lose a spouse or a friend. You know, today is Reformation Day. It's Jason's favorite Sunday. And this Reformation Sunday, my friend looks like Jesus. My friend looks like Jesus. And someday, I'll see that. Right? We will not just be transformed physically, though. We will be transformed spiritually. You and I can increasingly grow to have the same spiritual nature and quality of God. Just let that soak into your brain for a second, and then take a look here at First uh, John chapter three, verse two. He says, "Beloved, we are God's children now." Okay, when are you God's children? Right now, today, in this moment. But but what we will be has not yet appeared. When we when He appears again, when Jesus returns. We shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Paul would put it this way, same thing. He says, I don't have this up there on the screen. He would say, we will see Him, and we will be seeing Him. We will be transformed into the same image. Isn't that amazing? So we're going to be like Jesus physically. We can become like Him spiritually and this is an increasing reality. Now, we are so used to a cycle of death that our assumption is that, you know, babies come out, they're, you know, kind of frankly, usually pretty ugly, and then they get cute, and then they become really cute toddlers and stuff, and then they become cute little kids, right, and everything, and then they grow up, and at some point, we all reach peak beauty. Now, I don't know when you guys think that was. Maybe it was when you were 13, 15, 19, 29, I don't know. But we all reach peak beauty, and then it's downhill from there. Right? In my case, my ears sprout hair. I can't grow any hair up here. Right? Peak beauty has passed. But in the presence of Jesus, the journey we have begun never reaches peak beauty. We will increasingly, forever, become more and more like our Savior. Is that just mind-blowing? It, it, it is mind-blowing. So, so we're called to put on that new self that new self that is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, forever and ever and ever, freed from the constraints of sin and the brokenness of the human body and the life cycle of death, you and I will be transformed from one degree of glory to another into the image of God. Okay, so Peter's argument, God has gifted you through His divine power, all that you need for life and godliness, regardless of the circumstances. But there's a problem with that. 
See, you've all been lied to at some point in your life. Somebody has promised you something that they have not been able to keep. They may have had good intentions. Maybe it's a friend that intended to meet you for coffee, but they got a flat tire and they couldn't meet you. Right? Their power to effect everything did not match up with their promise. It could be something far more insidious. Maybe you had a parent that promised you a gift and they just couldn't come through with it or they chose not to come through with it. Maybe you've had a spouse make a marriage vow that they broke. We've all experienced the brokenness of human promises. So when Peter says that God's made these promises, there is a part of you inside your brain and inside your heart that doesn't actually believe that God will or can follow through on all of His promises. And it's because we've misunderstood God. We think of Him as finite in both good intentions and capability. But He is neither. Now, He's like a geyser. You guys know what a geyser is, right? Like old faithful, right? You know, every hour, hour and 15 minutes or whatever it is that old faithful goes off this huge amount of pressure that comes from underneath the ground, boils water up to a point where it shoots water out this hole, up into the air, and tourists watch it all, right? God's grace and His gifts are like a geyser. Specifically, I want you to think about it in these categories. God's geyser is the overflow of His power and His presence and His promises, okay? God overflows with this. He's, I want you to grasp this in some small measure. Let's talk about God's power because Peter says that this promise is contingent on the power of God. It's His divine power that has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What do you believe about the power of God, His capability to follow through on the promise to give you and me life? Now, we're talking about unlimited, everlasting power. Now, you've never met anybody like this. It doesn't matter if you're talking to the President of the United States or the Premier of China or the President of the Soviet Union or Russia or whatever they're called, right? It doesn't matter because that person is, not limit, uh, is always limited in their power. They're limited by laws. They're limited by the capabilities. They're limited by wealth. They're limited by the brokenness of their bodies, by the fact that they're going to die. You can be one of the world's wealthiest billionaires and buy the world's biggest social media platform and find yourself, guess what, limited, as a particular human being is finding out this week. But not God. But not God, because His power is always unlimited. It's always everlasting. Now, I want to go back here real quick. We need to get back. There we go. Thank you. Scripture says this, that He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, and He is the exact imprint of God's nature. And then it says this about His power. He upholds the universe by the word 
of His power. And after making purification for your sins, my sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He has completed His task. He is forever there reigning with His power, the same power that upholds the universe, okay? So I want to give you guys an illustration of that power. So let's take a look here. I don't know if you guys know what you're looking at. That is not a painting. That is the most expensive photograph that the human race has ever taken. It took 24 years and $10 billion to launch the most expensive object we've ever fired into space to take that picture. That's the uh, tiniest portion of the Eagle Nebula. If you were to go out on an extremely dark night and be in the right position on the globe and pull out a pair of binoculars, believe it or not, you can actually see the Eagle Nebula. You would see nothing that looks like this. Even through binoculars, you would see a tiny, tiny flickering light. That flickering light has taken 6,500 years to come to you. The picture you're looking at shows not what the Eagle Nebula in some small portion looks like today, but what the Eagle Nebula looked like 6,500 years ago. The picture you are looking at is such a vast picture of this one section of the Eagle Nebula that if you were one of those stars, and that's what they are, stars on the right-hand side, one of those points of light on the right-hand side of the picture, and you shine your light, by the time your light reaches the other side of the picture, it would have taken eight years. That's what you call a wide-angle camera lens. <laughs> those clouds or what scientists call a cloud nursery, or star nursery. It's where stars are born, those tiny red blobs that you see there in that photograph are stars being born. Some of those stars that are being born have 10,000 times the power of your sun. So, when... And this is a close-up here. I just wanted you guys to, to get some grasp of this. When God said to Abraham, roughly 4,000 years ago, Abraham, look up at the stars. Count them if you may. And all Abraham could see maybe was a tiny flicker of the Eagle Nebula. If he could have zoomed in and then zoomed in again, this is what Abraham would have seen with hundreds of thousands of times of magnification. And what he would have seen is vast fields of stars. Now, can I really blow your mind? The Eagle Nebula was picked for this picture because it's actually pretty close to us. It's well within our Milky Way galaxy. While this is 6,500 light years from us, the Milky Way galaxy is well over 100,000 light years across. And maybe much faster. 
It takes light from the sun four hours to reach Pluto, which is the edge of our known solar system. And it takes eight years for light to reach from one side of this picture to the next. Now, why am I giving you guys an astronomy lecture today? Because Jesus has been upholding and playing with stars for billions of years. And that power that calls all of these by name and creates them as a matter of His will is what gives you life and godliness. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? There is far more power in the fingertip of Jesus than you and I could possibly ever comprehend for all eternity. And that overflowing power flows to you and me through the gospel, through the good news story of Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Thessalonian church, you want to know how God's power came to you? It gave you life and godliness. He says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. The same God who makes all those stars comes and brings His Holy Spirit and brings you conviction and calls you out of darkness into life and grants you a new life and a new hope that you might live with Him forever. Isn't that shocking? It overflows to us, to each and every one of us. Uh, Jesus said this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. How do you know that we can go forward from here, no matter what God chooses or chooses not to do with an organization called Redeemer Baptist Church, how can I be convinced that you can go forward from here and lead somebody to Jesus Christ? Because the same power that plays with stars for thousands of years before he even bothers to tell Abraham about it has been poured out on his church to bring people to salvation. That's amazing. It's not just to us, though. It's within us. It's a power that doesn't sit outside us. It indwells us. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church this. He says, To him who is able to do far more abundantly all than we ask or think according to the power at work, where? Within us. The same God who creates vast cosmos... And sub, 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 sub atomic particles that we keep finding more and more of is at work inside you and me to make us into His image and to make us His children now and forever. Now, don't get confused. That power is not of us, though it indwells us, right? In fact, very often, God puts us in places where we find the limits of our power. You know what my least favorite phrase in the whole world is? My family can tell you. I don't know. I hate that. I hate that. I mean, it's like, ugh. you know, I'm like, want to wash my mouth out now. It's just like, give me a bar of soap. I don't like saying that. I don't know. I hate that. But God regularly brings me to a place where I don't know what to do. God regularly brings all of us to that kind of a place, doesn't He? 
where we don't know what to do on a particular day or in a particular situation. God brings us to a place where we don't have the capability, even if we do know what ought to be done, we don't actually have the capability to do it. Our bank accounts are too small. Our energy is too little. We go to bed. I I tell people this all the time. The only person who gets all of their to-do list done every single day is God, and you are not Him. So God reminds us that we're dirt jars so that we can realize that the immeasurable power of God that indwells us is not of us, but of Him. And where we are weak, He is strong. The surpassing power belongs to God, not us. And that power changes you and me and the world. It changes us. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Church, hear me with all that is in front of us. Whenever you are afraid, that is not from the Holy Spirit. Preaching to myself. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-control. Praise God for that. Okay, that's God's power, but it's not detached from His presence. There are people who would love to take the power of God and separate it from the presence of God, and they are followers of Satan because that is what Satan wants to do. He wants to co-opt the power of God and separate it from His presence and God's purposes. But God says, I'm going to give you my presence. So go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through something. Through the knowledge of Him who has called us to what? His own glory and excellence. This is God the Father saying, hey, come here, kid, watch this. (laughs) You won't believe what I've been doing now. But He wants you there with Him. He's calling you to Him, to His own glory and excellence. And He does this, again, through indwelling us. It's not just God's power that indwells us. It's God's presence that indwells us. God Himself has come into our lives to indwell us. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says this, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells where? In you. That God Himself would take your life and set up a temple wherein He is worshipped and known. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. It's very simple. If you don't have the Spirit of Jesus Christ indwelling you, you are not saved. Period. But oh, if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus, here's good news. On your absolute worst days of your life, Jesus still is sitting on His throne in your life. In your life. No matter how much you've tried to pull Him off of it. Isn't that amazing? Because He will never leave you 
for me. He will never forsake us. That's the promise of God's Word over and over again. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So God's gifted us with His power, this this overflowing geyser of God's power and His presence, but also His promises, right? And we don't have a ton of time to unpack this, but I just want you to go back there, go back to chapter 1, verse 4, where He says, He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you can become partakers of the divine nature. How do you and I become more and more like Jesus? It's by going to the promises of God. I want to ask you, I want to beg you, I'm pleading with you in all that is coming in the days ahead. Open up your Bibles and find those promises of God. In Isaiah, when he says, when you go through the fire, I will be with you. When you open up your Bible and it says that he will provide all that you need according to the riches of his glory. I want you to go to the word of God and find the promises of God. And I want you to lay your Bibles open before God, digital or analog, and cry out to God and say, I want this promise. This, like Jacob, I want you to cling to him until he blesses you. Not for your own sake, but for the sake of his kingdom and his glory and your good. Brothers and sisters, the promises of God are hinged upon the greatest gift of all. He who did not spare his own son, how then will he not also along with him freely give us all things? He gave you Jesus. Don't be thinking he's holding back. He's not holding back. It's crazy, right? Okay, one more thing we got to go through, and that's this. If we think about God's gifts, we think about God's geyser, understand this, you and I will never deserve any of the things we've been talking about. We can't earn them. We can't deserve them. We get them through God's grace. If that's not clear, I want you to hear me clearly that the reason you and I can go to God and cry out for Him to fulfill His promises is because there was a perfectly lived life on our behalf. Someone else has earned the right to bring us into the throne room of God and have God indwell us. And we didn't earn it. We didn't contribute to it in the slightest degree. Peter has already said this, by the way. Did you miss it when we went through it earlier? When he opened up his book to the exiles? Simeon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, just think about that for a second. Peter just wants you to know, hey, Josie, guess what? You have the same faith that's in me. It's a faith of equal standing. Maggie, you got the same faith of equal standing that Paul had. Or Priscilla. Isn't that amazing? Buy something. (laughs) By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, the reason I can be so confident about the quality of the faith that is inside you is because you didn't earn it, you couldn't buy it, you couldn't deserve it. Jesus gave it to you. (laughs) He gave the same faith to you that He gave to the early church. 
It's there. It's yours. It's a gift. It's an undeserved gift, an unearned gift, and we call that grace, right? It's a grace to each of us. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, not as a result of works. It's the gift of God to strip away your boasting and mine. By the way, Peter does something really cool. Whenever he talks about family life, I just love this. Uh, Here's a word to all husbands. Um, Really cool. He says, by the way, husbands, you know why you treat your wives with such care and dignity and respect? It's because they've inherited the same eternal life that you have. Don't be thinking that you're any better than them. They're not more saved than you. They're equally saved as you. They've inherited the grace of life. There's that life thing again. The grace of life. And this gift keeps on giving. It's a multiplying gift. It just keeps on coming. There's grace upon grace upon grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more, Scripture says. That's why Peter says this, May grace and peace, the wholeness of God, that peace isn't just an emotional feeling, it's not just that. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of who? (laughs) Jesus, right? It's right there. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's right there. You want more grace, more peace, more wholeness? Keep running to Jesus and dwelling in His presence and crying out to Him. Watch what happens when that happens. And this is a gift that we choose to grow into. Do you ever get clothes as a Christmas gift that didn't quite fit yet, but your mom told you you have to grow into it? Or is that just me, you know? Poor little missionary kid. You know, my mom had to buy clothes four years in advance um, before we could go overseas. So I don't know how she did it, uh, poor lady. But, but uh, I bought je- my mom bought jeans, but she knew I would be growing, right? So she bought jeans that were really long. And then like as I grew, she kept unrolling them. But I ended up with these really nice white lines around my jeans. You know, it was very stylish, you know. Um, Have you ever gotten clothes that you needed to grow into like that? Did you know you're supposed to grow into grace? I know that none of us has this all figured out. But day by day, we're kind of pulling on our grace jeans and our grace shirt and our grace coat. And day by day, we're filling it out a little bit more just like Jesus. We grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to Him be glory now and forevermore. So let's pray for God to do that work of His grace, His overflowing geyser of power, fulfilling all His promises and all His goodness to us. Let's trust Him. Father, We've been thinking about your gifts a little bit today. 
And I don't know about my brothers and sisters, but I'm feeling not quite like I fit into the jacket and clothes of grace that you've made for me, though they are wondrous and many-colored. So I'm asking for myself, for my brothers and sisters, that you would strip away the blindness of our eyes. Let us see a fragment of your tiny, a, a tiny fragment of your immense and vast and unsearchable power and presence, your promises, that we taste of them and partake of them, becoming more and more like you and more and more alive, more and more alive day by day. We know we can't earn this, we can't deserve it, so we simply come to you, clinging to you. We cry out for greater grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.